Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an incredible conversation to share with you. I just spoke to Ben Wolf, who is the CEO and chairman of an unbelievable company called Sarcos Robotics. Uh, Sarcos has been around for more than 25 years creating robotic systems designed to master uh, the world's most dangerous and unpredictable environments. They have a mission to save lives and prevent injury while helping humans go farther and accomplish more than ever before. We talk a lot about the mission of Sarcos, some of the new technology Sarcos has, some of the use cases of these robotic technologies, including a truly elegant exoskeleton. Uh, it's really cool stuff uh, and has amazing implications for the future. Uh, I had you know, this is sort of mind bending, uh, conversation that we had here and uh, I'm excited for the future, uh, of this technology. So I'm sure you all enjoy this episode. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Ben Wolf. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. So for the audience out there who's maybe not familiar with your amazing work just yet, would you mind telling them in your own words what it is uh, that you do and, and how you got to this point? Sure. Uh, I'm the CEO and chairman of a company called Sarcos Robotics, and we focus on making robotic systems that augment people rather than replace them. Uh, focused primarily on industrial and military applications uh, with the focus of uh, machines that can make people uh, have better capabilities, broader capabilities uh, than they would have on their own uh, and to be able to do their jobs safely, safely and more effectively. We, uh, we focus on uh, things like exoskeletons, and other types of robotic systems that uh, allow people to, to be superhumans, uh, to lift a lot, to manipulate a lot, to do heavy, heavy lifting tasks, and to do uh, strenuous work uh, without putting any stress or strain on the human body. So the, the focus is number one on safety and number two on enhancing productivity. Uh, the company has been working on this kind of technology for more than 20 years. The company was originally uh, founded back in the 80s and started work back then on uh, prosthetics, uh, electrically actuated prosthetic arms. So the team way back then created the very first electrically actuated prosthetic arm. And over the years, we evolved our, uh, our, our knowledge and understanding of biomechanics and how the human body works to um, everything from humanoid robots to robotic arms and other things that really try to mimic in many ways what the human body is able to do. Um, so we started the work with uh, humanoid robots in the 90s and, and moved into exoskeletons with uh, an initial grant from DARPA back in 2000. And so the exoskeleton that we're working on today uh, and bringing to market today is the culmination of 20 years of, of work. 
Wow, that's that's amazing. And and for anyone out there who has not seen the videos of this exoskeleton in action, I, I encourage them to go over to the website because it's unbelievable. When I first saw it, I didn't think it was a real video. I didn't. Uh, it seemed like you know it's one of those sci-fi, you know, something that you can't really imagine actually coming to fruition. Uh, but it seems like you guys have really. Uh, done some incredible work there and it's it's unbelievable to see um, I have to ask like did did you see this uh, sort of course uh, playing out in front of you you know decades ago or or when did you sort of see the idea of of uh, you know this becoming something that was feasible realistic and something that could be a real you know functioning business well you know our first work with DARPA back in 2000 was all focused on how do you give um, soldiers, the ability to carry more uh, load. Uh, you know, we all know that soldiers have to carry a lot on their backs, uh, equipment and supplies. And so what DARPA was originally interested in was how do you give soldiers more stamina and strength to be able to do their jobs more effectively in the field. And that's where the work began. Uh, as we continued to evolve the technology and advance the state of the art, we came increasingly aware of the ability to have this not just be focused on military and logistics applications in the military, but also to be able to solve a number of problems that existed in the industrial workforce. Uh, in 2007, Raytheon bought the company and we became the robotics division of Raytheon and focused from 2007 for the next seven years uh, really on the military applications. At the end of 2007, I'm sorry, at the end of 2014, I got involved with the management team and we did a management buyout of the business um, and uh, completely separated from Raytheon. And it was at that point in time that we decided to start leveraging the capabilities that we had developed uh, to focus on the industrial marketplace. So we, I'd say that, you know, that to answer your question directly, it really began in kind of early 2015 when we started charting a course for how uh, the technology and the products could be directly relevant in the commercial and industrial world. And that's what we've been, uh, you know, nose to the grindstone working on uh, ever since then. That's incredible. And I have some questions about how it relates to the uh, industrial uh, work area, but it's, it's amazing how, you know, the similar applications for a soldier, you know, there's, there's people every single day that have dangerous jobs. So being able to adapt this technology into those spaces to protect people. And one of the things that you mentioned, uh, earlier was that you're looking at enhancing human per, uh, production, human efficiency without replacing them. Could you touch on that a little bit more? Because I feel like when you start to talk about the idea of robotics and exoskeletons and things like that, this is sort of uh, a common th uh, thread this year where people are talking about more human labor being replaced by robots and how that's going to dramatically affect the economy. And so I liked what you said there about, you know, increasing human efficiency without replacing them. Yeah, um, you know, there are a, a lot of companies that have focused for a long time on automation and the role of robotics in automation. And there's, there's no question there's a, a, a very valid place for those technologies and products uh, in the economy. Uh, those types of tasks that are highly repetitive in nature, that are structured, um, where the machine can do something better, faster, more efficiently, more cost-effectively than humans, uh, often referred to as dull or boring jobs. Uh, there's no question we're going to continue to see a significant uptake in uh, that type of technology being deployed. Uh, but what we noticed was that there are a lot of jobs for which uh, the tasks are not repetitive or they are in more unstructured environments. 
And that's where uh, automation really doesn't have an opportunity to shine because, uh, because things are, are different with almost every task or every application. And our view is that artificial intelligence um, coupled with uh, robotics and automation will only get us so far just because of how varied uh, a lot of these work environments and tasks are. So our whole focus is how do we leverage the best of both man and machine relying on human intelligence, human instinct, human judgment and wisdom to couple that with the strength and endurance and precision of machines. And in our view, there's really only one way to get there, uh, and that's to put a human in the driver's seat, if you will, for the robot. Uh, not dissimilar to what we've done historically with other types of large machinery. When you think about a human driving a forklift, for example, uh, that's relying on the, the, the same kind of combination of human skills and machine capabilities. And that's what we're doing with our exoskeleton. So for all of those jobs in industries that have a lot of variation, uh, that's where we will shine. And we think that um, those are the kinds of tasks, frankly, that aren't going to be ripe for automation, uh, certainly in my lifetime and probably for generations to come. I see. Understood. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you had a sort of the, the first versions were coming out towards the end of the year. And, you know, it's amazing to me to see even how, good looking the first version is. And I'm curious if you've imagined, you know, sort of what the difference would be between the first generation product that you're, you're launching versus what this could be maybe 10 iterations down the road. Yeah, you know, today um, the machine has the ability to lift uh, and manipulate up to 200 pounds. Uh, and to be able to do that, um, it requires uh, physical structure of the machine. It requires um, motors and transmissions and electronics uh, and um, you know, a tremendous amount of software, hardware, and firmware uh, to, to make this complex system work um, in a way that really doesn't require the human to give it much thought um, to make it intuitive. Uh, all of that infrastructure uh, associated with the machine, all of those components, I think we will see evolve over time so that they get smaller, lighter, more capable. Uh, so the machine that you see today, uh, as you say, is a pretty good looking machine, but what I would expect to have happen uh, from the, the physical appearance uh, and overall capability set over time is it will become more capable with uh, less weight, less mass, um, longer battery life as battery life continues to, battery technologies continue to evolve. Uh, so that's kind of what I, what I think will happen over the next multiple years and iterations as materials get stronger and lighter, as motors become more efficient, and as uh, battery capabilities uh, continue to become enhanced. Uh, beyond that, we expect to be able to implement uh, various types of machine learning and bits of artificial intelligence to be able to make the machine um, even more effortless to use, <clears throat> to have it be able to really partner with the human operator to be able to do certain tasks with greater precision uh, and, and really, again, get the best out of both worlds of both man and machine. So we have not yet implemented um, any significant amount of artificial intelligence or machine learning into the machine, but over, over the next several years, we will. And so a great use case or example of that might be if you think about a human using uh, a tool while wearing the machine like a handsaw, uh, electric power saw. Uh, the ability to have the human guide the saw to the starting location, but then to have the machine's intelligence 
enable the cut to be a perfectly straight, precise cut without some of the variation that might occur if a human was just doing it on their own. That's where we, see, we get really excited about where, where the machine can go over time, continuing to enhance both uh, productivity, efficiency, precision, and, and then also safety. When you, when you describe the sort of future iteration, you know, I really can't help but to think of anything but like an Iron Man suit. Is that, is that uh, somewhat accurate? You know, I was asked recently by uh, someone um, fairly senior at the Pentagon about, um, you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, when, when can the machine fly like Iron Man? Uh, and my response was, when, uh, when somebody can produce the arc reactor, then we can talk. Um, you know, there's, there, there's, there's no question that uh, uh, Hollywood has created some uh, both, uh, you know, ex- expectation and uh, a, 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 an awful lot of fantasy around what machines are capable of doing. Uh, Hollywood isn't constrained by the laws of physics, unfortunately we are. Uh, and so I think, again, we'll see it get lighter and more capable over time, but the odds of it doing uh, what we've seen in Iron Man movies are probably uh, a, a bit more remote. Now, what you see in uh, some, of, uh, some of Iron Man's predecessor movies, things going back to like the Aliens movie with uh, Ripley and the power loader, uh, that's, that's certainly something. I mean, that's, I think we're, we've actually advanced beyond what, what was shown in that movie. Yes, yeah, certainly your machine is more elegant than than what's uh, depicted in Alien. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, so I myself, I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm in the solar industry. And so for me, I, I'm always on the lookout. I'm, I'm especially keen to watching for innovations uh, in sort of ancillary markets, things like battery technology and, you know, new mining technology that, that might change my industry entirely. You know, sort of, uh, you know, one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Andy Grove, uh, who is a CEO of Intel for a long time, talks about uh, being on the lookout for 10x multipliers that might dramatically influence the industry that you're in uh, or the business that you're in. And I'm curious for you, what are some of those 10x multipliers, some of those technologies that, you know, if you know, there are breakthroughs made, might dramatically change the landscape for robotics? I think power really is one of the biggest issues. Uh, one, of the, one of the big impediments to mobile robotic platforms, uh, which I'll include our exoskeleton, um, has been the amount of power they consume and then how you can efficiently power those machines to enable mobility. Uh, the first several iterations of the exoskeleton going all the way back to you know, our first prototype in 2004 uh, consumed an awful lot of power. And just to give you a sense, the very first prototype that we created was using 6,800 watts of power. Wow. Um, and, and when you look at most walking robots today, the things that you see in cool video clips, um, thing, you know, we've, I think we've produced probably more humanoid robots um, in, in the 90s than anybody else had, and, and they're in educational institutions all over the world now. Um, they, produce, they use somewhere around 5,000 to 6,800 watts of power. Uh, and that's, a, that's an amount of power that just makes it almost impossible to have real world, uh, you know, long-term applications in industry, uh, much the way drones, uh, you know, consumer drones can only be aloft for 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, that's the kind of lifespan that we were seeing out of a battery pack that the, that the exoskeleton back then would have been able to utilize. And so we were, we were powering our exoskeletons back then with a tether, you know, basically a, a big plug, if you will, that had to plug into a solar sure. power. Um, and that significantly limited the, the, the opportunity set. 
So as we uh, started our life uh, post Raytheon in 2015, one of the very first things we focused on was how could we produce a commercially viable machine that was not dependent on significant increases in battery technologies. Um, and that led us to focus on reducing the amount of power consumed from those very first iterations. So we moved from 6,800 watts of power being consumed in the first iteration to our next major development brought it down to half of that. And today, uh, with our alpha units, we are down around 500 watts of power. So we've cut more than 90% of the power consumption out of what the suit utilizes. And, and Patrick, you know, because you're working in the industry, you know, 500 watts of power is, um, that's about the same amount of power that a, a, a modern uh, flat screen TV is using. Uh, and to be able to have a machine that can lift 200 pounds, can walk at three miles an hour, uh, and can uh, you know last for a, a fairly significant duration on a single battery charge is, is a huge feat. And, and I think that, that whole issue about power consumption and uh, increasingly efficient power supplies is one of the single biggest areas of focus for mobile robots. That's incredible. Uh, I had no idea it could be that efficient, especially from from your starting point to where it is today. It it, it makes my mind, uh, you know, scramble just even thinking about how this could look in another 10, 20 years, how much more efficient that could be and what the output of a machine like that could uh, could be. You could probably lift a thousand pounds, uh, you know, with the similar amount of wattage uh, being pulled. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it's it, that that is it, that is one of the three single biggest one of the three big achievements that we've uh, been able to to accomplish. And without that, um, we simply wouldn't have a, a viable commercial product. What are the other two big achievements? One of them was getting a, a machine that was um, able to move with most, most most of the same range of motion and dexterity that humans have. Uh, what we call kinematics, uh, the ability to have the machine map the the, the way the human body moves so that it doesn't require uh, you to do things very differently than you would if you weren't wearing the machine, other than you're a lot more capable with more strength, more endurance, and more safety. Uh, so we put a ton of time into understanding the kinematics of the machine. And because people come in different shapes and sizes, you know, trying to have a as close as we could get to a one-size-fits-all machine required an awful lot of effort on our engineers, engineering team's part to get there. The, the third big achievement is in the software and controls area. Uh, where this machine can um, be very intuitive to use. Uh, we have people that can get into it for the first time and with a, just a very limited amount of training, start using the machine. And what they all tell us is that the machine starts feeling like just a natural extension of the body. Uh, there is not latency uh, or delay between the, the movement of the operator's arm or leg uh, and the way the machine moves. So it doesn't require you to think about how to move the machine or to interact with the machine. Instead, the operator can put all of their attention and focus on the task at hand. And that, again, is a, is a, is a number one requirement from our perspective um, to be able to make it intuitive and natural to use, feel like an extension of the body, not require a lot of attention and focus from the operator. Uh, and to do all that, by the way, while it only takes about 30 seconds for the human operator to get inside of the machine and start operating it. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And so does the machine take the cues from, you know, like a slight amount of, you know, 
pressure, you know, like if you were to move your arm upwards, it's going to feel that pressure and it's going to, it's going to sort of replicate that or, or how, how does it take the cues from the human body? Yeah, we've got a significant number of sensors embedded uh, in the in in the machine, uh, more than 125 sensors in the machine, and the sensors coupled with the processing power that we have on board, we have a we have a an equivalent amount of processing power uh, that, that's pretty analogous to three big servers. Uh, so a tremendous amount of compute power on board, and much of that compute power is all focused on how do we translate the slightest amount of human movement into the, the machine's movement so that it does just naturally follow uh, the movement of your limbs. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was a big achievement to get to that point. Wow. Yeah, that's, that sounds, uh, you know, it sounds amazing, especially the focus with uh, sort of it being intuitive. It's really what makes any technology really catch on uh, is the fact that, you know, it can just be an extension of, of what we already do. I think that's part of the reason why, you know, a, a device like the iPhone was so easy for people to pick up is because you could give it to anybody and they can figure out how to interact with it. Uh, sort of just intuitively the way our brains are wired. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and that becomes even more critical when you're asking people to use a machine and when you're talking about doing uh, dangerous or challenging tasks. They really need to be able to focus on the task at hand and not on the tool that they're using. Absolutely. And so you mentioned that you're, you're looking to get this technology out into the uh, industrial world, uh, let's say by the end of this year. What are some of the industries that you see the most promising benefits uh, for this technology? We've been working with a, a group of uh, Fortune 100 companies uh, over the past two and a half years to um, uh, examine their use cases and requirements, performance needs, safety requirements, um, and they come from a wide range of industries. Uh, so we have companies in our group representing uh, the automobile manufacturing industry, the warehousing and logistics industry, construction uh, and public works industries, um, uh, aviation, uh, cargo handling, um, you know, it, it beca because the machine is as capable as it is, it really fits into almost any of the industries and use cases where individuals today, uh, workers are doing physically demanding tasks. I have to ask, have you considered any applications with, you know, it's sort of a big year this year in terms of the future regarding space and space exploration and, you know, the United States space force being launched. And I'm curious if there have been conversations or, or ideas related to the, utilizing this technology as it pertains to sort of the new industries that will exist with, uh, you know, the space industry. We've had some, um, some interesting discussions around the, what the suit can be used for in terms of um, manufacturing uh, for that space. Uh, when you're talking about um, low volume, high mix manufacturing, uh, kind of bespoke manufacturing, we're not making millions or hundreds of thousands of units of something, but rather a smaller number, we're, we're very well suited for that because again, it's not that repetitious type of activity, but still heavy lifting and, and manipulation of heavy objects is important. So uh, we've had some engagement on that side. In terms of use in space, uh, you know, you, you think about it, gravity plays a pretty significant role in making things not as heavy. Uh, and so the heavy lifting part of what we do in terms of a suit being worn by um, a human in space, probably not all that applicable. But what we are seeing is interesting is that some of our 
technologies, um, because they are as kinematically equivalent as they are to the human body, could potentially be used for teleoperation, meaning remote operation, where uh, you could take the arms, for example, that we have engineered for the exoskeleton and potentially uh, put them on a different kind of base, not requiring walk, you know, legs for walking, um, but where you could, on a remote basis, perhaps have a machine uh, on a planet or on the moon uh, and have it taking direction from a Earth-based operator. Yeah, that would be very interesting. I had a guest on the show previously who who had you know really uh, done some research and thought in this area. And you know, one one thing that we see regularly with people who return from space is that really our, our biology was not intended to evolve in in those kinds of conditions. We weren't you know your bone density gets lowered. Uh, we we face all sorts of challenges of just trying to live in space for an extended period of time. So it is certainly interesting to consider the reality of people operating uh, you know a, a remote uh, robotic, uh, maybe, you know, it's kind of like avatar, right? You know, it's kind of operating some sort exactly of, right. yeah, like remote, uh, humanoid kind of droid or something, uh, in space to be able to, uh, you know, do all sorts of things, whether that's new industries related to like asteroid mining and, uh, whatever else, if it's setting up a base on the moon, it's pretty, pretty amazing to think, to consider those possibilities. Yeah, and you know, certainly the, the capability of the machine to be teleoperated, again, we don't rely on artificial intelligence to tell the machine what to do. Um, but if you can imagine a scenario where you might have an operator um, paired with a machine and have the machine working on a remote basis, uh, that's certainly doable. And in fact, we make a, a very large version of our exoskeleton, something that you can find on our website called the Guardian GT, which is, a, I'll, I'll, I'll colloquially refer to it as a supersized exoskeleton. It's got seven foot long arms and can lift a thousand pounds, a much bigger machine, but it is intended to be able to be teleoperated. And it has a specific application on Earth uh, for use in uh, decommissioning nuclear power plants, going into areas where humans really ought not be. Uh, but still an awful lot of skill and dexterity and human intelligence is required to do, do these diversified tasks. And so that machine is intended to be able to be operated from perhaps, you know, even a couple miles away uh, and uh, still be able to, to do all the kinds of dexterous tasks that humans do while lifting a lot more than what humans can do on their own. It's incredible. It's amazing to, to consider these, you know, it's really one of these technologies that, uh, you know, once sort of the, the lid is blown off, uh, you can imagine thousands of applications um, so we haven't spoken much about the military applications. I'm curious sort of where, where, you know, where we're at with that, uh, you know, does the military have interest in this technology still, uh, as it did, you know, when, when it sounds like this program first got started, uh, and where are other countries in relation to the United States and being able to develop these technologies? So from the DOD perspective, uh, we do work very closely still with the DOD. Uh, we are focused exclusively on logistics applications. So the applications are very similar to what we see on the commercial and industrial side. We don't work at all in the tactical space. Uh, so everything is about supporting our troops. And when you think about what, um, what our uh, uh, armed services have to do uh, in uh, more remote areas, uh, they don't have the kind of physical infrastructure that many of our commercial and industrial customers have even. So having a machine that is uh, very flexible and agile and able to do a lot of different tasks uh, is, as I think, very appealing. Uh, so we've publicly announced that we are delivering uh, units this year uh, to the military. 
Uh, and uh, so we're just getting started uh, delivering our first units. I, I said that we'll be delivering our beta units at the end of this year, but we've actually already got some alpha units out in the field. Uh, and that started at the beginning of this year. We, we first showed uh, publicly disclosed and, and demonstrated our very first alpha uh, unit in January of this year at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, with our partner Delta Airlines, uh, where the, the exoskeleton was on stage for uh, Ed Bastian's uh, keynote, open keynote address for CES. Uh, and we were able to demonstrate some of the use cases that relate to the aviation industry. All those same use cases, whether it's uh, repair and maintenance of, uh, of, of planes or moving cargo around, uh, all of those same kinds of applications that Delta Airlines has um, are, um, our Air Force and, and other uh, uh, aviation parts of DOD have the same type of applications. I see. That's very interesting. I'll be curious to see, uh, you know, how that plays out over the next few decades. I, I can't help but to imagine a world where we just have robots fighting robots uh, in warfare and, and people are no longer sort of in the line of fire. And that, that you know, that is, uh, to the extent that we can take people out of harm's way, that is, um, that is a wonderful place to get to. Uh, again, we don't play in the, in the, tech, in the uh, tactical space. Uh, so when it comes to carrying guns and shooting at the enemy, that's not our space and not an area that we're focused on at all. Uh, but you also realize that you know something like the the ratio of logistics support personnel to frontline troops in our military is something like seven to one. Uh, you know, wow. We talk about the the tail the tail versus the tooth, and the team in the tail supporting the, the tooth uh, is is uh, around the seven to one ratio. So we can do an awful lot of good helping people get their jobs done to support our troops, uh, reduce the wear and tear and stress and strain on the human body, reduce the number of injuries. Uh, I think the last statistic I saw for the U.S. Army is that the U.S. Army lost something like 26 million man days due to um, back injuries. So there's an awful oh lot God. of lifting and loading and turning and, and, and you know, that, that happens uh, that we expect of our troops, and I think we can play a big role in, in, in helping minimize that. So it sounds like, uh, you know, this is kind of sounds counterintuitive because, uh, again, when people think about robotics and they think about these kinds of technologies, they worry about it replacing humans. But I mean, from what you just described there, sounds like with this technology being fully implemented, uh, you know, someone who's doing otherwise manual labor could continue to do that manual labor for much longer um, require maybe less breaks um, and be able to do it more efficiently than, you know, if they were uh, you know, just utilizing their own, you know, <laughs> human skeleton, right? Uh, that is the, yeah, that's the, that's the goal. Um, you know, I, I think we bring a number of benefits. Number one, there are some uh, jobs out there that are so physically demanding that people's body starts to wear out as they age. Um, you know, they, they, uh, there are some industries that you read about that the average useful life of an employee doing a particular job is counted in single digit years. Uh, some industries talk about three and a half years, uh, others six or seven or eight years, but the, the jobs are so physically demanding that your body really breaks down uh, over time and you wind up being in so much pain um, and having so many injuries that you can't continue to do the job. Uh, you know, we think about that all the time when we look at professional sports, you know, you talk about the average uh, uh, lifespan of a, of a you know, running back in the NFL, for example. Well, those same kinds of issues about bodily injury uh, exist in a lot of our industries. And so we think that we can uh, allow people to do their jobs for much longer, be productive, productive members of society in their, in their jobs for much longer uh, without having the stress and strain and deterioration of their bodies. 
beyond that, it also opens up a whole um, a new, um, I guess we would like to say, we open the aperture on the types of people that can do physically demanding jobs. Yes. So there are jobs out there that, you know, if you're not built like a linebacker, you can't do the job. Well, now we can take people, whether they're young or old, big or small, male or female, and they can have they they can play a meaningful role in doing some of these physically demanding jobs. So we we both can allow people to do their jobs longer as they age, and also open open the job opportunities to a much larger swath of the population. That's incredible because especially now there's such a uh, an issue in our economy where you know it seems like the labor market isn't what it used to be. You know we're moving more into a space of high tech jobs, which you know. Uh, only some people are able to do. It requires a high level of education to do a, a number of the knowledge jobs required today. So being able to basically uh, reinvigorate the labor economy with this kind of technology where people, like you said, young or old, male or female, uh, would be able to participate in that economy seems, you know, I've, I've never considered that reality. Well, you know, to, to add to that, when you, when you think about, let, let's at least go up until 10 weeks ago, you know, kind of pre-COVID, um, there were uh, real labor shortages uh, in some of our skilled labor industries, uh, most of them, in fact. And if you talk to employers around the globe, uh, particularly in um, uh, more advanced economies, uh, uh, you'll hear uh, across the board enough workers. We've got an aging demographic, aging workforce, and for the most part, younger people aren't interested in going to these physically demanding jobs. Well, if I told you, you know, that, that the physical demanding job you know, working in a warehouse, now instead of just being a warehouse worker moving boxes, now you get to be an EXO operator. I think it changes the interest level uh, of young people going into those jobs because now you're operating one of the world's coolest robots as opposed to just being a laborer moving boxes around. Certainly. I mean, and not to mention the fact that, you know, you get home after a long day of work and you're not, you know, aching and, <laughs> you know, having all those other health that's issues. Right. Um, that's amazing. That's right. And I can only, I mean, and, you know, my mind is just racing with, uh, you know, how much this would increase the efficiency of so many different things. Like, like I was just thought of construction um, and how slow we, you know, we build projects in the United States compared to other, uh, other countries and how with, you know, just implementation of this kind of technology, it seems like you could have people working around the clock, um, all day, longer shifts and get things built just significantly faster. And sort of the, the ripple effects that that would have on the economy is, is also startling. You know, even, even beyond asking people to work longer, uh, I think they can just work better. Um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the jobs and use cases that we talk to our customers about, um, they tell us that as the day goes on, as an eight-hour work shift goes on, productivity drops and precision drops because of fatigue. And we can play a big role in reducing the fatigue of, of workers. And so even just with, without having to ask people to work longer, they can be more productive and efficient uh, by wearing the exoskeleton. Sure. And, and I can imagine there's a statistic out there about, you know, the number of workplace injuries that occur under that, you know, state of fatigue uh, that would be yes. completely avoided. Wow. That's right. That's incredible. I, I have to ask you just personally, you know, being, you know, sort of the head of this company, I'm, I'm curious, where would you like to see this future go with this technology? Where would you like to see this in 10 years? Um, you know, we've talked about many of these applications, um, but I'm curious, you know, just like how widespread would you like to see it? How economical would you, would, you know, would you like this technology to be? Where, where are some of your goals at, uh, for deploying this technology? 
Well, if you look, you know, if you, let's take the 10-year time horizon since you mentioned that. Um, I don't know whether this is, you know, how, how practical or realistic this is, but if we can get volume up and we can continue to see the advances in the size, weight, power, and cost of our components, uh, which are all heading in the right direction, ultimately you could see the core technologies that we've developed being used um, in other industries. Uh, for example, I'd love to see it in the healthcare industry, not as it relates to rehabilitation or, or people that have an injury, but rather being able to do things like lift patients. Um, you know, the single biggest uh, incident freight for back injury of any industry or occupation in the U.S. is nurses and orderlies um, lifting patients. Now, it's going to take a different kind of uh, format for the machine. It's got to be, it's got to look um, less industrial and, and uh, you know, than, than it does today. Uh, but I think that's a great use case and opportunity where we can really do a, a, a great service for our country's healthcare workers. So that's an area that, you know, industry-wise, I'd like to see us evolve into. Beyond that, if we can, if we can really get the cost down where, um, where I think it, it, it can go, ultimately you can see this kind of a machine, a lighter duty version of the machine being something that is useful for um, healthy elderly people uh, to prevent falls, uh, to allow them to uh, be as strong as they were when they were in their 20s, even though they might be in their 70s or 80s or more. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of uh, good that our core technology can do away from kind of the, the traditional industries that we're looking at, but we're not working on that today. That, to be clear, we're just focused today on getting it out to the to our industrial customers. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, you, you need to start in an area where, where it's going to have the highest value, the highest impact and, and basically, you know, uh, roll out from there. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's, that's, you know, it's, it's, Again, it's it's amazing to consider this, you know, the future with this technology. Um, do you ever consider any of the dystopian uh, potential futures, uh, or you know, do you, it sounds like you guys have a, an understanding of the aesthetics, you know, the design, and the intuitiveness of this uh, technology and working with humans. So it sounds like you know the mindset is in the right place to avoid these kinds of, uh, you know, maybe gloomy uh, ideas of the future that some people have when it relates to this technology replacing. Uh, some human functionality, but do you ever consider, uh, you know, do you have anything to, to remark about, uh, you know, some of maybe the more dystopian uh, fears when it comes to this kind of technology? Well, I, I guess I'm a little more bearish when it comes to the realities of artificial intelligence in the real world. I make a distinction. When I talk about artificial intelligence between real physical world applications versus uh, digital applications and, you know, things that kind of live in the ether. Uh, I think we'll see artificial intelligence as we are today continue to progress and do amazing things when you're not trying to manipulate or engage in real world applications. But moving artificial intelligence into things like self-driving cars or flying vehicles um, or the kind of robots that people see in Hollywood movies, I think that is um, so far out that I'm I'm not personally I don't have a lot of anxiety about that kind of dystopian future that you're talking about. Um, the the human mind continues to be the best processor we've ever seen anywhere in the world. We have the ability to uh, take in billions of data points and process them in a way that no machine can do. And I don't I, I really don't see that changing in a uh, in a way that would be reflective of some of the things that uh, Hollywood has has spun out there um, uh, for you know decades and decades or maybe even ever. Uh, so I know that's a that's a that's a big statement, but I don't worry personally about a lot of the things that other people are are, are fond of worrying about in the media.
I love that. It's very reassuring. Um, and you know, it, it is quite a, uh, counterintuitive to consider that, you know, while, while building these uh, robotic technologies, you must have gone through, uh, you know, learning the anatomy of humans probably more so than, than, you know, nearly anybody, right. You have to understand how the human functions, how our muscular system works and, and, uh, how our perceptions work. So, I mean, with you, uh, saying that, you know, I'll take that as, as some solid reassurance. <laughs> I think, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it is a complicated thing to build a humanoid robot. It's a really complicated thing to build a humanoid robot that you can wear, um, you know, that will work in tandem with and seamlessly with the human body. Um, but, but just even getting back to the humanoid robots, um, it's, it's not so much about the physical structure of the machine. It's about the, the processing power, the, um, the, 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 the data that comes in from sensors, uh, I think I think our current machine is producing something like 93 million data points an, an hour. I mean, it's 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 an intense amount of data, um, and it's and we're not trying to uh, you know operate autonomously. So if you think about what what you have to do uh, from a sensor data analytics and processing perspective to be able to have a machine that could, uh, I assume you're, you're in your office or sitting at your desk, uh, to be able to get up from the chair that you're in and uh, open the door, navigate around furniture and just go out to the, to the parking lot. I mean, that, and every time it's different, uh, it, it is, it's just an extraordinary thing to try and accomplish. And um, I, I think we are, there's just far too much fantasy involved in what AI is going to be able to do in the real world at this point. So just, just not something again, that concerns me a lot. Excellent. Well, that's, that's uh, definitely good to hear. So uh, when it relates to your business and, you know, growing in the short term, what is it that you guys need more than anything? What, what is it that maybe someone listening to this, uh, to this show could, could consider or contribute or what is it that, that drives your business forward that, you know, you need most uh, that people could, you know, consider. Uh, to be perfectly candid, we need more people. <laughs> we continue to hire. We try and find the best and the brightest uh, to work with us. Um, we are always on the lookout for great mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, software engineers, uh, controls engineers, um, and we couldn't be uh, achieving what we're achieving or anywhere close if it wasn't for the stellar team that we've got today. But we're growing, and and so um, hiring is is one of our top priorities in building a, a world class team. Um, so people is one of the biggest drivers. Uh, fortunately for us, even in this uh, time of COVID, uh, we've, we've been very successful at attracting people that we want. We're always on the lookout for just really great engineers that uh, can can be agile in their thinking and creative in problem solving and come up with new ways of trying to achieve things that um, everybody else says is impossible to do. Well, I would definitely recommend to any uh, qualified engineers out there to definitely consider it because it sounds like the mission that you guys are on is, is truly incredible. And uh, the more that I've considered the uh, implications of this technology from our conversation today, I, I really, it's, it sounds like the kind of future I want to live in, uh, the kind of world where, uh, you know, again, manual labor is, is much more uh, available to people. Uh, it's, it's much less harmful to humans um, and the amount of just efficiency that, that this has uh, related to individual production and then the overall efficiency of the economy. It sounds like it's just truly one of the greatest innovations that, that, uh, and technology that's being developed today. So I certainly uh, you know, applaud your work here. I, I think it's a really important thing that you're doing. Thank you. 
Thank you. We think it's uh, it's going to play a role in um, some of the things that are uh, hot topics in the media today. The idea of bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. Um, you know, obviously, one of the reasons why manufacturing started to leave the U.S. was because of the cost of labor uh, and uh, the, the low cost of labor in other countries. Uh, I think with the productivity gains that we can bring to bear with our exoskeleton, we can play a role in that um, that idea of making um, more manufacturing um, cost effective and um, uh, you know a productive part of the U.S. economy. So that's one of the things we're, we're really excited about. I have to ask when when it relates to people and and finding the right uh, you know people to join your team, uh, electrical engineers, uh, mechanical engineers, and so forth. Do we have enough in the United States or is that like a glaring issue where there's, there's simply not uh, the talent pool that we need in the United States? I think we've got what we need in the U.S. Um, we've, been, we've been so thrilled with the team that we've grown so far. Today, we're about 128 people. Uh, I think a little more than 100 of those people are engineers. Uh, that's up from when we first uh, uh, split from Raytheon back in 2015 when we were 13 uh, people. Uh, and and so you know we, we see a lot of great candidates. We're always looking for more. I, I think because of the unique nature of the work that we do, and that it is um, you know resonates with people that were that were focused on robotics that augment humans that are intended to fulfill our mission of saving lives and preventing injury. I think that's something that gets people excited. So although we are headquartered in the center of the country, uh, you know, not, not a place that's traditionally viewed as one of the robotics hotspots like you have on the coasts, you know, we're, we're, we're headquartered in Salt Lake City. We've had people move from Boston and from uh, uh, Texas and from Silicon Valley and really all over the country have moved to Salt Lake to join us. And, and so we're, we're very gratified by that. I can't tell you, I can't speak to whether we have enough engineering talent uh, across the country to serve all of the needs of all of the industries, but but certainly when you're working on things that are kind of cutting edge and and, and world changing like like we are, we've, we've we've been pretty successful. Amazing. Are there any uh, like core principles or ideas that that you know you and and maybe the executives over there uh, sort of rely on to guide decision making in your business? We do have a we we have a, a set of. Um, uh, core principles relating to our vision and our values, and then also um, a pledge that we have made to each other. And also uh, it's a pledge that every employee that joins us signs up for. And, and the, you know, the, the, the vision is focused, as I said, on um, producing robotic systems that augment humans to save lives and prevent injury. That's, that's kind of a, a, the rallying cry. In terms of our values, uh, we very much focus first on taking care of our team, because without a team, as I said, you don't get uh, anywhere to, uh, to the point of being a successful business. So that is number one, taking care of our customers is number two, and then rewarding our investors is number three. Uh, and, and we're very clear that that is the, the sequence or the, 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 the um, kind of the, the priority list for us. Uh, if we don't take care of our team, we won't be in a position to take care of our customers or reward our investors. And if we don't take care of our customers and make them happy and delight them, uh, we're not going to reward our investors either. So I think you know, rewarding our investors is a, is a natural follow-on and outcome of first taking care of the team and, and second taking care of our customers. Um, in terms of the pledge that I referenced, uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, kind of simple set of uh, seven items that all relate to how we treat each other, 
uh, and uh, the commitment that we've made to each other as part of being part of the Sarcos family. And that's something that we publish on our website. It's included in every offer letter that goes out to uh, potential recruits. It's something that we address in every interview that we have for new team members. And we really want to be sure that it's a series of, uh, of, of commitments that uh, everybody is excited about and, and can truly commit to. And is, has that pledge been around since uh, sort of the founding of the business? The pledge has been around since uh, I think we, we came up with it in kind of the, the middle days of 2015. So we'd come out of Raytheon and we were uh, establishing our, our new business plan and starting to build the team. Um, and the, the pledge is really um, a, 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 is, is came together as a result of uh, my prior experience in building companies uh, where I had not had a pledge like this, where we were not as clear about what it meant to be part of a team like this. Um, and so it's, it, you know, it's a, it was a culmination of my thoughts and my partner's thoughts on what did we really want to emphasize as being the most important things when it comes to how the team relates to each other. I love that, uh, especially, you know, again, as an entrepreneur myself, uh, you know, we, we try to do similar things and see similar impact. It was really amazing the power that uh, something like that can have on everyone's mindset day in, day out. And especially in a complicated and challenging emerging industry, it really takes, uh, you know, commitment to a mission and rem uh, reminding yourself of that mission every single day to stay motivated and, and stay on track. So, uh, again, another thing that I, I love about what you guys are doing over there. Thank you. Um, before we wrap up, is there any final asks or requests that you have for the audience? Anything that you'd like to direct them to any, uh, any, really any, any final words to, to leave them with? Well, I think you know, we'd, we'd love for people to take a look at our website, uh, take a look at some of the, the, the videos that we've got uh, that uh, show what the product's capable of. Um, and to the extent that you've got, uh, you know, ideas about how it can be useful to, fundamentally make the world around us better. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. Love that. Well, Ben, uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think your business is absolutely amazing. I'm really excited to track the progress over the years. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say it enough. I think what you're doing is going to have unbelievable effects on the world around us, uh, you know, probably sooner than most people might think. So everyone listening, keep an eye out because this, this is really something special. Great. Thanks for your thoughts and for your time today, Patrick. Great. To Thank you, Ben. To to you. Truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.